Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell and my guest in this episode is speaker, executive coach and team development expert, Adrian Belagian. Adrian believes that the old models of team development, the ones we've been relying on for decades, have become outdated and unsuited to the challenges of the modern workplace. He's developed his own handy team development matrix and is here to tell us all about it. And if you like what you hear from Adrian, you're in luck because he's offered a downloadable version of his book, Teams That Swear, to Team Guru podcast listeners for free. You'll find the link on the Lessons Learned page for this episode on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Adrian Belagian. Adrian Belagian, welcome to the Team Guru podcast. Thanks, David. It's fantastic to be here. Well, it's nice to have you, Adrian, and your brand new book, it's quite provocatively titled, isn't it? It's called Teams That Swear, By Each Other, Not About Each Other. Now, yours is a wonderful book all about building an effective team, a a team that shines in your language. But why did you land on that as the title, Teams That Swear? It was actually inspired by a colleague of mine when I was working in corporate. So the first 20 years of my career, I worked across Canada, Africa, and Australia. When I moved to Australia, I had a colleague of mine who I would say they had a little bit of a potty mouth and make no mistake, Canadians swear, but I found in the workplace here in Australia that there was just a little bit more of it. And my colleague and I had a little bit of a debate saying, you know, the Aussies like to swear a lot. My colleague would say, no, 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 but it's good for you. And me being a little bit stubborn would jump onto Google and say, well, what do you mean it's good for you? And I'd be looking for some some proof behind this statement. And it, it turns out that I was right, but so was my colleague. There was some research that suggested that Australia was one of the top four countries when it comes to swearing. <laughs> and my colleague was right as well in terms of the benefits of swearing. So there's, there's a number of pieces of research that are out there that have demonstrated that swearing can make you stronger. Mm. Uh, swearing can increase your pain threshold. So they did a study mm-hmm. where they had participants put their hand in freezing water, time how long they could keep their hands in that water, and at that time saying no words. They'd repeat the exercise by saying what they called a neutral word, and then they would do a third group and they would get them to say their favorite swear word. And lo and behold, the group that could hold their hands in that ice cold water the longest was the group that did it, it while saying their swear. favorite swear word. Yeah. So, but probably more, more related to what we're going to talk about in our discussion was there was another study that was done across Australia and New Zealand, funny enough, when it comes to swearing. And what it showed was that trust plays a big role in terms of high-performing teams, which probably doesn't come as a surprise to anybody. But they dug a little bit deeper and the researchers wanted to know, well, what was driving that trust? And what are the observable traits from the teams that had one of the highest performings, one of the highest ratings, was that they actually swore a lot more around each other than any other team. And what the researchers concluded, and this is through interviews and observation, was that when the teams that could swear amongst each other, what they found is that actually built the trust higher and higher because the people felt they could drop their guard. They could be themselves if it meant they were frustrated or they were telling a joke or they want to have a little bit of fun and it included a swear word. They felt comfortable enough that they could speak like that in front of their peers and they wouldn't be judged. They wouldn't be frowned upon. And it actually, one of the main conclusions of the study was that swearing actually built more trust amongst the teammates. So 
that's where the, the the inspiration came for the title of the book. A little bit from it kicked off with a colleague, and then a little bit of digging in the research. And I was like, actually, this swearing thing it's it's provocative, but it also helps can make things better. Holds some water, and and I wonder when I hear the idea around the teams that swear are more effective. I wonder, is it because they swear? I'm guessing the act of swearing doesn't make them more effective, but the feeling that they can swear and it's accepted and they have a good enough relationship with the people around them is the same dynamic that makes them a good team. So maybe it's not causation, but more correlation. And the same ingredients exist that enable me to swear are the same ingredients that enable me to work really well with you. I think you nailed it right on, Dave, because I'm not necessarily suggesting that the workplace should become a swear, uh, you know, an, a swear uh, yes. fest. That's right. Um, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm not a big swear. If my kids swear, dad gets angry with them. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not professing that just if you swear, that's going to make everything better. But you've nailed it because when you talk about those feelings that you were talking that you mentioned before, I can be myself. Uh, I'm not going to w- be worried what others are going to think of me. They're not going to judge me in a negative way. You're actually describing. What Amy, Dr. Amy Emmonson from Harvard Business School calls psychological safety. It's that ability to, to be yourself, share mistakes, share what you think without worrying that something bad is going to happen because of that. So while swearing might bring people closer together, it's not the only ingredient and it's, it's just something that I think is actually a good symbol of, of what safety and trust can do to a team. All right. And your book's around a lot more than just swearing. And I got caught up on the title there for a moment, but it is a very useful book in terms of developing healthy team dynamics, teams that shine. And you start off in the book by early in the book, talking about Tuckman and Tuckman's language around uh, forming, storming, norming, performing, and adjourning will be very familiar to everyone who's listening to this. And you've written in the book, and I'm going from memory here, something along the lines of, that's a solid, it's a solid theory. It's a solid set of thoughts but it's a little bit out of date. Tell me about that. And who are you, Adrian, to come along and tell us that Tuckman, with whom we're all so familiar, is all of a sudden out of date? Explain yourself, young man. Well, I, I think Bruce Tuckman was onto something. And, and a lot of what he talks about is still relevant. But when I look at that study, it was down in the 60s. And again, while there's some foundational aspects of what he talks about, there's some more recent research that is probably a little bit more relevant and also a little bit modern. So one of the studies that really stands out to me is a piece of work done by Dr. Sandy Pedlin from MIT. So MIT being one of the, the most famous technology schools in the world, Dr. Pedlin himself at one stage was in the top seven most influential data scientists in mm-hmm. the world, right up there with Steve Jobs. So in pretty good company. And what Pedlin wanted to find out was what drives a high-performing team. But what he wanted to do was understand what was it that they were doing, not necessarily what they were talking about. So he put all these sensors and, and technology badges. He worked with over 180 teams, over 2,000 employees across a number of different industries, put all these badges on them, and then analyzed the data. And what he found is that the number one predictor of, of high-performing teams, of the most successful teams, the teams that won the most, the number one pattern was patterns of communication. He could predict how well teams would perform based on three to five, let's call it patterns. So I'll give you an example of one. Typically in a team, you might have, let's say you've got a team of six people. You've got, you've got the boss and you've got the five people in the team. And typically the, the communication patterns are the boss has a lot of communication with most people in the team. There may be a couple of people within the group 
that are good friends and they speak a little bit more. There might be another three that talk a little bit. There might be a couple that don't talk at all. What he found in the most successful teams was that everybody in the, that team spoke with each other roughly the same amount. It didn't matter if you reported into the boss or not. If all six people were roughly communicating, give or take a little bit here and there, the same amount amongst each other, he could look at that team and go, I bet you they're going to succeed and he would be right. Another pattern that he found was, well, I talked about forms of communication. So he said there was a dis clear distinction between what was the best way to succeed within teams and he could also predict which would be the lowest performing teams just in how they communicated. And this may not, this isn't rocket science, I don't think, but it really reinforces the value of face-to-face -face communication. The teams that succeeded by far the most were the ones that engaged what he called face-to-face -face energetic conversations. So it's shoulders facing shoulders, highly engaging conversations, but face-to-face. -face. Video conference was the second most effective way of communicating, but once you got over seven people at that video conference call, that's where the effectiveness and the efficiency of the communication started to drop. And if he looked at teams and the, their primary source of communication was the written word, so whether that was some kind of messaging app, whether it was typing you know, through emails, if that was the primary form of communication amongst the teams, he could predict, and it, this, the research backed it up, those were the worst performing teams. So it's quite fascinating just to see how people communicated, not necessarily what they said, but how they did could impact. And I think that's really relevant in our world today, obviously, with our hybrid working environments is how do we overcome that? What are ways that we can prioritize that face-to-face -face communication? Or in larger teams, when it's more than seven people, does that actually work? And how can we break that down and make be more efficient in these new forms of communication? When I read that in your book today, I got really excited in a, in a sort of a negative or a neutral way at best, because the face-to-face -face comms and the prediction of effectiveness as, as a team makes sense. It, it makes sense rationally and intellectually, but it also makes sense from experience. We can all think about our best experiences at work, and we remember those fabulous relationships. As you say, the, the fact that everyone in that team of six or seven or 11 spoke with each other equally, there weren't kind of like little groups within the group, there, there weren't little cliques where some people felt on the in and some people felt on the out. It was a lovely, even communication through the team. But the face-to-face -face stuff, I think that's something that we used to take for granted pre-2020. We took that for granted, but now it has a whole different feel to us. Now, does that mean that we will just get better at video and video conferencing will become an effective tool in communication in the way that face-to-face -face used to be? Or does it mean that we just have to have lower expectations on the vibe we have when we're part of a dispersed team? What's the reality? I think the reality is, David, it's, it's a trade-off. You're trading off efficiency for those deeper connections. Mm. Because one thing that came out of the pandemic was that video conference is very effective. You could get in there, people were going, yep, let's get to the point, who's doing what, let's move on. We're all clear on what's happening next. But there was none of that talk beforehand that would happen before meetings. Mm. And there was none of that talk that would happen afterwards when you'd walk out of the room. Something would pop into your head Clarify. that you'd all... Wait a minute. So yeah, so I think it's actually becomes a trade-off, more of a what's going to be more effective. I, I think the, the evidence is clear in what's more effective. And when you start to see organizations like the metaverse and Mark Zuckerberg, who's built his empire on connecting digitally, when Facebook has recently come out and said, we actually think we work better as a team by being in the office 
more often. The irony, the poetry there. Yes, it's fantastic, but it just reinforces how important that is, that human connection face-to-face is. And I wonder if we will ever get that hybrid technology where, okay, we know face-to-face is better, but we know connecting over Teams or other talk apps is better than nothing and we feel somewhat connected but not as connected if we were in the same room but what about these fabulous virtual reality places where when you and I are having a meeting we can put on a headset and be sitting in a room together and I can be looking at you and feel as though I'm in the same room I wonder if that technology will ever bridge the gap and will ever really truly feel as connected as a team as we would have in the old pre-2020 world if we had a crystal ball we might be able to make a pretty confident call on that. But interesting though. I think what will happen is it'll probably be a generational mm. impact is yeah, that- You and I will never feel that comfortable with it, but people who've never not known it to be technology that exists will feel more comfortable. Yeah. I that's think right. right. All right. Now let's move it on to some of your really important thinking, Adrian. You know, a really straight, straight out question, a, a straightforward question I could ask you is what makes a good team then? But I can lead it a little bit because I know that the two foundations that you've picked for your work are relationships and clarity. Now, I love the team dynamic matrix that you've put together. Everyone loves a, a quadrant matrix. So if you can think or picture it, listeners, we've got the y-axis or the up and down axis is relationships. Clarity is the horizontal or the x-axis. And it is and those four boxes. So if you're thinking the, the bottom left is low relationships, low clarity, Adrian's called that sinking. If you stay on the left and you go high relationships, but still low clarity, we're calling that spinning. We go down to the bottom right, that's high clarity, low relationships, self-serving. And the grand tour, high relationships, high clarity is shining. Good language. I like it. Do you mind talking us through, Adrian, how you settled on relationships and clarity as the two foundations of effective teamwork? I love them, by the way. I'm completely sold by them. And tell us about sinking, spinning, self-serving, and shining, and what's what it feels like to be part of those teams. Well, David, when I wrote Teams at Swear, my goal was to take my 20 years of corporate experience. I spent a good 12 months doing a lot of research, looking at all the different studies out there. If you jump into Google and type in how to create a high-performing team, I think you get over 4 billion results in about 0.4 of a second. So you read them um, all, obviously, in your so research? I don't have to go past the first three. There's nothing that exists after that, I don't think. That's my marketing gaze coming back into play here. <laughs> what I really wanted to do was try and make it simple for leaders because there is so much that they have to manage right now. And if they can get the component of the people working together, that it makes things so much easier. So through all the research, I just found that it came down to those two things. And when I look at relationships, or when, when I'm talking about teams, I think relationships matter most. And we're talking about not just relationships where we get along, it's important, but it's about creating mature relationships. And when you're looking at that, we talked about a couple of those ingredients. I'm really big on connection because I think once you have connection, that is ultimately a lead into trust. Talked about psychological safety. Can people feel that they can share their opinions? They can make a mistake. They can say, I've got no idea what you're talking about right now, David, but it feels important. I just need a little bit more help. Can they do that without any negative repercussions coming down on them. If you can get that connection, the trust, and that psychological safety, it allows you to enter into even a deeper relationship because that allows for feedback to be not seared, but something that's looked forward to. Conflict. When we think about conflict, people always think of that as a negative thing. And I've had feedback that it goes, oh, that sounds, sounds quite American. 
And I'm quick to point out I'm Canadian, by the way. But conflict can actually work well for people when it's used intentionally, because what it does is it just it's, it allows for new ideas to be developed. The Wright brothers were famous for arguing. Now, that wasn't just because they were brothers and their family members. They actually did it on purpose. So there's stories of how they would be, one brother would be arguing that the propeller needs to be a certain length and the other brother would be holding his arms out even further out saying, no, 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 it needs to be longer. And they would, you know, go back and forth on that. They would then stop and they would change their positions. They would argue for the other person's positions oh, yeah. to, to force them to think about, okay, yeah. let's just, how would that work if we yeah, did it that yeah. way? And more often than not, they actually came up with a third solution because they were open to the idea that there might be something in what the other person was saying. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. You know, when you were talking, and I've read it in your book, so I know that you value the work of Patrick Lencioni, who is, you know, I, I guess the godfather of modern team discussions. Tuckman probably pipped him there in the 60s, but... Patrick Lencioni has given it somewhat of a of a modern feel, although we're getting on probably 20 years from Lencioni's work. Um, his is the pyramid kind of model, the hierarchy, and his starts with a lack of trust. And his second dysfunction of a team in his five dysfunctions of a team model is fear of conflict. And he talks about just how important it is for a team to feel safe enough, that psychological safety where we can have conflict. Because I know it's not going to ruin our relationship. I know that you're not going to think I'm a dickhead as a result of it or I'm just coming after you because I've got an axe to grind. You're going to think I'm being productive because I care about the outcome. And teams that don't engage in conflict are unhealthy teams and they're a dysfunctional team. And for a lot of people, when they first come across that concept, it is somewhat counterintuitive, but it doesn't take much scratching below the surface to understand the logic behind that. That's right. And when you talk about fear, typically how the brain will interpret somebody going against you is that right away, you know, it's that fight, flight, or freeze. But essentially, our brain is interpreting that as a potential threat of exclusion. And, you know, when we're talking hundreds or thousands, depending what you subscribe to, years ago, if you were not part of a group, you probably didn't survive. We've evolved a little bit then, but our brains are still interpreting that rejection of an idea as exclusion and potential death. So one of the things that when I'm working with leaders and leadership teams that I like to encourage is saying, actually, let's be really intentional about conflicting or challenging ideas. So in a team meeting, for example, said, David, you're going to be the challenger today. And everybody knows that your role for this meeting is to question and challenge things on purpose. It's not whether you agree or not. It's just to force a different way of thinking. And when people know that that's your job and they're expecting it from you, they're much more comfortable. They're mm. much more open mm. to being challenged that way. Because it's a great way to break doing, the ice, isn't it? Absolutely. It's not an attack on you. It's actually a very structured and process-driven way to look at things differently. Mm. Yeah, it's very powerful. All right. Now, I want to talk through, so you've talked about your foundations, relationships and clarity. Fantastic. You've got to have the relationships so that the team works, know each other as human beings, understand what drives you, understand things about the way we communicate, our differences, our similarities, all of that stuff. And then the other axis is the clarity. It's great to have good relationships, but if we don't know what our actual goal is here, then we're going to spend some time spinning our wheels or running against each other. The forward of your book 
by Belinda Clark, which was nicely written and, and it must have been a good get for you to get Belinda to write that. It reminds me, we love talking about sports when we're talking about teams in organizations because sports are such a clean example of a team. And, and Belinda makes that point, reminds me of that point in her forward. Because in a sporting team, the goal is so clear. Our roles are so clear. I'm thinking a lot about cricket at the moment because the ashes are on. You've been picked in the team as a batsman. You've got to make runs. It's very clear. You've been picked in the team as a bowler. You've got to bowl tight, not get many runs scored off you, and you've got to take wickets. The roles are super clear. And the goal, the goal is so clear. We want to win the game this weekend, or we want to win this series, or we want to make the grand final and then win the grand final. It's so easy in the world of sport, and it's so tempting for us to use those metaphors in in the world of work, which are enjoyable. I think there's no harm to them, but it's a lot messier where we work because we're not playing for a World Cup in my workplace. We have got messy objectives that shift and change. People in my team might be part of multiple teams, and that's not the case in the Australian cricket team. I mean, once you're the Australian cricket team, nothing else no. in your life matters. Whereas you could be at work right now and you look around at the four or five or 10 people in your team and you know that he's on another really important project as well. And her real gig is with some other team who are doing really important busy work at the moment. So everyone's attention is divided. The metaphor or the comparison between a sporting team is not so exact. So tell me about clarity and tell us what it's like being in these teams that have clarity or relationships or one or the other and, and what it can look like. Yeah. So when, when we're talking about clarity, I always say that clarity creates cohesion because it gets everybody on the same page and everybody's working towards that same goal. And you talked about Lencioni earlier on. One of the, the interesting things that I'm finding more and more that when I'm working particularly with leadership teams is about them getting aligned with what is the purpose of them as a leadership team. So Lencioni talks about being on team one and team two. Mm. Team two being the team or the department that you lead and your team one being the leadership team that you're part of. And often what I'm finding in workplaces right now is that the leaders, the senior leaders, they're very good at leading their team to their department. Hmm. Most likely they've recruited those people. So that's where they spend the people, time. That's where they spend the time. They've got similar interests. If you work in marketing, you're recruiting marketers and that's your passion. That's probably what's, where you've driven your success from. But when you're part of a leadership team, that is a different role. And that is, I think, what more leadership teams need to start thinking about is what is the purpose of us as a leadership team? Not what the purpose of the organization is, not what the purpose of my department is, but what role do we play as senior executives, as senior leaders to help achieve the business goals? And when people start thinking about that, they start to go, oh, there's a little bit of a light bulb moment and acknowledgement that there's not enough focus or priority put on what Lencioni would call that team one or the, what I call the purpose of the leadership team. So if the teams can get aligned on what's the purpose of our team, boom, they get a gold star. The second one is around objectives. And there's a couple of pieces around this where I think what teams can create clarity. One, and I, oh, I, was, I did this 20 years of working in corporate, is that we have individual KPIs, but we keep them so close to our chest. We feel like that's something very private and we don't share that with our colleagues. And what I found is there's a couple of teams that we actually started sharing that we realized some of these goals overlap and we could actually put some of our budget, we could combine our budgets or combine our resources, our FDE counts 
to actually both tick boxes for both of us, but we could do it a lot smarter. So there's this piece around creating clarity and alignment and sharing each other's goals. But for teams as well, when they're made up of individuals, this is where the, I think the sport comes in. The cricket team are trying to win the Ashes. That is what the whole group is working for. Often in corporates, there's not those clear goals that there's a team goal. What is it that, what's that overarching objective? Lencioni talks about that as well. That's actually going to be, is absolutely critical to our group achieving success. And if you can identify that combined goal or that overarching goal, that's what unites people. But it, everybody has to be able to contribute it to it for it to really work well. And with your relationships and Clarity Foundation, which, as I say, I think are very strong, there's four possible teams, of course. There's the, the team that's low on Clarity and low on relationships. We've got nothing going on. We're sinking. We're a sinking team. We don't know what we're doing and we don't get on. We don't understand each other. We don't understand our team's purpose in the organization. We probably don't even understand what the organization is really trying to achieve. We're a sinking team. Now, if we're in the top left quadrant, which means we're good with relationships, we've got it going on, we get on well together, we communicate pretty well, we understand each other's strengths and weaknesses, all of that great human stuff, but we have no clarity, it means we're spinning our wheels. We're kind of like a car stuck in the mud. We've got a lot of engine, we've got a lot of torque, but the road is not laid out for us. We do not understand the journey yet. I really like that language that you've put around that. Well, and David, when you think about those teams that are spinning, what happens if an engine just is burning and burning and burning, going to go out? What happens is the engine blows out mm. and they burn out. And in a team that's spinning, what happens is everybody's working hard. There's no doubt that everybody's in it together. They're willing to put in the extra effort. But what happens over time is resentment builds because they're working, working harder, but they're not making a meaningful difference. Because there's no and clarity. Res- we haven't set ourselves up. That's right. Who's doing what? Are we working towards the same goals? Are we all moving in the same direction? And what happens is that resentment builds, and this is when the swearing starts. And with a spinning team, the swearing is about the leader over time mm. because everybody's going, I'm busting my tail here and I'm not getting weird. None of us at a group level or individual get anything out of it. What's wrong? And they point, start to point the fingers at the leader. And that erodes the vibe big time when people are spinning their wheels but not feeling like they're getting anywhere. So I, I'm interested, in, for those of you who are listening, have you been part of a team like this? Have you been part of that sinking team that's got nothing going on, relationships or clarity? Have you been part of that spinning team where the relationships are pretty good, but there's no team or organizational clarity? So we're spinning and eventually people are going to get sick of spinning their wheels and going nowhere and Things will start to get pointed. Fingers will start to get pointed at the boss, probably. And the seniors, those others in the outside the room somewhere, the organization will become the bad guy. And then we move along to the bottom right. So that's where the relationships aren't good, but the clarity is really strong. And this is where people are self-serving. Those of you listening, have you been in a team like that where we know what we're trying to achieve? We know what the goals are. They're really fast-paced goals. And in fact, they're so fast-paced, we haven't got time to form relationships with each other people are just looking out for themselves. They're looking for the kind of perks they can get or the, the the next role they can get in the organization after this project is over because they've done a great job. They don't care about the other people in their team or the relationships they haven't struck up with them because they are self-serving. And then, of course, there's the top right, which is where relationships are good, clarity is good, everything's working, we're a shining team, and that's the goal of your work. Absolutely. And Anybody who's been in a shining team, David, they'll know it. And particularly if you're a leader of a team that's shining, because the work that a leader can do when their team is shining 
is very, very different than if their team is spinning or self-serving. Mm -hmm. If a team is self-serving, the leader has to spend a lot of their time mediating issues amongst the team members. Somebody's not happy with somebody else. They did this. They said that. That's not what we agreed. They didn't produce on time. It wasn't any good. It made me late. My team's now got to, got to do rework, all that kind of stuff. All that stuff. So what does that mean as the leader? One, it's draining. So energy is spent on the wrong things, but they spend their time mediating issues nonstop. On, in contrast, if you're in that shining team where the team is owning the results, Humming. they're driving forwards. Yeah, everything is going well. What that allows this, the leader of that team is to influence at a higher level. They really get to focus on growing the business. They get to focus on growing the people and themselves. But the big thing is that they get to do is they start to influence the broader business. Or if you're a senior executive team, you start to actually influence the industry mm. into new spaces. And that's where everybody wants to get to there, but it requires that dedicated focus. You have to be deliberate about it. There's one thing I know when working in teams is that complacency is costly. If there's hidden issues, they're festering away and they will always explode and it's never pretty. But when leaders are very deliberate about how their teams do teamwork, it pays off big times in terms of dividends. And I wonder if people listening have ever been in a situation where they're in a shining team, relationships, clarity, strong, humming, the leader can do the big stuff and something changes. And then all of a sudden we dip into a self-serving team. Maybe we lose a little bit of clarity and people are still, uh, sorry, we lose a bit of relationships. People have still got clarity. They've still got stuff to do. So they become self-serving or we might go the other way. We lose a bit of clarity, but we're still a good relationships because we were a shining team a little while ago and now we're spinning again. And it's amazing how the same teams or a, a team in the same organization can move one way or the other. And it's often subtle changes. Again, in Belinda Clark's forward to your book, she reminded me of the truism that when one member of the team changes, the team changes. You're not the same team anymore. And you need to go through some of that old work to make sure you stay where you are or continue on your growth trajectory. Because if you get complacent, you're sitting in a shining team and all of a sudden you switch, I don't know, two or three out of the seven or eight or nine people in the team, you've got a brand new team and you can't take for granted anymore the relationships and the clarity that you once enjoyed. You know what? And, and even when one person changes, you've got a team of six and you think, oh, one person changes. So five relationships have changed. It's actually closer to 18 or 19 mm -hmm. relationships because the dynamics of mm -hmm. every single relationship is changed when somebody new comes along. But you make a really good point, David, that once you're a shining team, it doesn't mean that you stay a shining team forever. The very best leaders continue to be deliberate about focusing on the relationships making sure that feedback is part of a regular process rather than just waiting for it to happen. They're using conflict regularly. They're not just assuming everybody's aligned with roles and responsibilities. I think when you look at job descriptions now, particularly in the digital space, that's based on a, a current moment in time given that context. 12 months later, things change very quickly. There's new projects that come up, things are prioritized differently, and people's roles change. But if the team doesn't understand the impacts of it, that's where you can get into trouble and that's where that spitting can get worse because you don't have that clarity. But you have to be deliberate about it. All right. I really enjoy, I really like those foundations of relationship and clarity. All right, Adrian, can you believe we have run out of time? I can't believe how quickly our time has gone. Hit us with your three nuggets of wisdom that you're going to leave me and the listeners with tonight. So the first one is 
Complacency is costly amongst teams. Don't let teamwork happen by chance. Be deliberate with it and you'll get the dividends. The second one is around clarity. Clarity creates cohesion. And the third one is when it comes to relationships, relationships matter most. And I can sum it all up from a leadership perspective. Give it the time it deserves. 10, 15 minutes on a monthly meeting to talk about how the team is doing teamwork is well worth the investment. Very nice. Complacency is costly. Clarity creates cohesion and relationships matter most. That is a great way to leave it. Adrian Belagan, I have really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Team Guru podcast. Right on, David. I feel really honored to be here. Thank you for that. And that was Adrian Belagan. You can sense his passion for team development. And why not? The teams we work with become such an important part of our life. They go a long way to determining our level of professional satisfaction. They form a large part of our human interactions at work. And ultimately, they play a tangible role in our overall feeling of wellness as a person. Adrian's three nuggets of gold were, number one, complacency is costly amongst teams. Don't let teamwork happen by chance. Number two, clarity creates cohesion. And number three, relationships matter most. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Adrian on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. And don't forget to check out my new project, yourstorypod.com.au. And if there's someone you care about who should tell their story, get in touch and we'll make it happen. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.